At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to The Peripheral. As most of you know, I come from a true crime background, but my intentions with The Peripheral were was never to make another true crime podcast. And if you've listened, you know that it's mostly personal stories and interviews. But as we all know, people have family members murdered. People have traumatic things happen in their families that absolutely crosses over into the true crime genre, if you will. So on today's episode, I speak with James and Sandman. James is the brother of Doug, who was murdered in his apartment. Sandman was his best friend. Whenever a podcast covers a tragedy like this, it can come off very exploitive. It can come off with a complete disregard for the people's lives that are actually impacted. And that's something that I know Aaron and I never wish to do. We always want to approach things with respect and empathy towards the victims and survivors that are involved. And there's a lot of angles and elements to when you have a family member that's taken from you so abruptly. Well, uh, go ahead and, and introduce yourself, James, and then Sandman, and then we'll go from there, okay? All right. So my name is James McMillan, and, you know, the reason I'm on the podcast is uh, we're chatting about my brother, Douglas McMillan, who... Um, was shot and killed in a home invasion in Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, back in 2009, and it remains unsolved. And we'll we'll get into all the details, obviously, but it, essentially, it's a story of uh, unfortunate um, events. You know, just really poor police work, uh, debatably corrupt law enforcement. I you know I would argue that and just really an unjust situation. You know, justice has never been served and uh, kind of across the board in this situation, just a really unfortunate thing. So really appreciate you having us on, Justin, and, uh, you know, able to, to kind of talk about the story and hopefully get, you know, some elements of the truth out, uh, which have never really been discussed much in public. So appreciate that. And how do you fit in, Sandman? Yeah, and... Uh... Uh, my name is Matt Sandsburn, but all my friends call me Sandman, and I was Doug's best friend, or at least I like to think I was. He was for sure so my best friend, and uh, yeah, Jamie outlined it pretty darn good. Doug got murdered. It's still unsolved, quote-unquote, to this day, and I'm just here to tell the story because I was there and part of a chunk of it and uh, hoping for the best. You were his roommate, right, at the time? Negative. I had moved out approximately, uh, I want to say six to eight weeks previous to that happening, but I had been his roommate for years before that. Well, it's good to clear that up. So at the time you were living with him, uh, you guys were best friends. James, were you hanging around a lot at that time too? Yeah, I, you know, tagged along uh, quite a bit 
you know, I was the younger brother, so uh, it was kind of that dynamic. I was younger by about two and a half years. And so I would, uh, Doug and I had a common bonding point, I guess, over smoking weed. He had a pretty tumultuous, you know, uh, adolescence and really childhood. I mean, really his whole life. But um, we really bonded that way, I guess, you know, it, in that stage of our life. So we were, you know, I would go over there and with the older brother and wanted to do what he was doing and be around him and the crew. So I wasn't there as frequently as, as some folks, you know, but I, I'd say I saw Doug once every week, two weeks, um, you know, it was a, if not more, it was pretty frequent and just linger around, you know, and, and wanted to be, like I said, with the crew and, and feel involved. So Doug had a pretty robust social circle and, you know, I mean, he was selling weed. That definitely was, I guess, the foundation for all of this occurring. He sold it at a relatively big scale uh, for someone his age. You know, he was 19, essentially freshly dropped out of high school. You know, he went and got his GED, but, you know, he was just a young guy. And, uh, yeah, you know, his he just he had a really kind of colorful crew um, at his place. Frequently, it was kind of like a place to hang out. I can't imagine being 19 and dealing with something like what he had to deal with. Uh, you know, my head was still at my ass at 19, so I can only imagine, you know, uh, trying to sell drugs and do this stuff and live my life. Uh, I'm sure that... Trust me, our, our heads were squarely up our own rear ends as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of going to go there, like, you know, I mean, Doug was, there were certainly many, many, I can say, you know, so many positive things about Doug, and all that being said, I could also tell you, like, yeah, you know, he wasn't unique as a 19-year-old, he was doing all kinds of, you know, reckless, unwise things, you know, just really uh, sort of spontaneous, and um, he definitely played into the the whole situation, I suppose, or, or that aspect of it did. But so, yeah, it, it, you know, this, this whole situation didn't come around because Doug was making lots of wise decisions, let's say. I think he really enjoyed making money. I think that was really satisfying for him. And uh, he also liked spending it. You know, if you if you enjoy spending it, you've got to go make it. So he never went to like a university, but he was taking community college courses. And, yeah, they were all business related. Yeah, I'd like to butt in. I don't know if Doug so much enjoyed making money as he just liked winning and outsmarting people. Like, if he beat at <laughs> well, yeah. Scrabble, he would have been just as happy as if he made $500 selling pot. Like, he was just kind of his uh, his personality. Like, he liked to win. He liked to uh, be right. You know, it was just like a characteristic of him. So I don't know if it was necessarily any kind of money that made him happy, but I think it was more of just like, hey – this is a venture and I'm succeeding and doing well at it. And I think he got his jollies off of that more than money. Yeah, I think that's accurate. But he also, at the time he was like wearing Ed Hardy clothing and, you know, buying t-shirts <laughs> yeah, for $130 t-shirts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so some of them I think were a lot more than that too, which, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was just, they were spending like that and like, you know, he would go to Milwaukee and, get a hotel room and, you know, have really lavish evenings with his girlfriend. And, uh, yeah, I think Sandman's definitely right. Like, I, I, he definitely enjoyed getting one over on people. 
like, I think part of the drug thing, I think he liked how it was illegal and he felt, you know, like maybe he was getting away with something and then, you know, getting all this, uh, being able to treat your girlfriend to all these, you know, awesome times and wearing flashy clothing. He enjoyed that for sure. Yeah, that sounds like it's more trying to get one over on the government and not trying to sell people or rip people off. It was just the thrill of doing something illegal, right? Absolutely not. Um, That's one of the reasons why Doug had customers is because not all drug dealers have character. Mm -hmm. But, like, Doug would never sell you an ounce of weed that weighed 27.9 grams. Like, it was going to be 28 or above every time, no matter what. He wasn't out there to rip people off or make money or rob anybody. Like, he was a legitimate business to him, and he wanted to treat his customers well. And I witnessed this repeatedly. Like, you'd never short anybody. It was always on the up and up because he cared more about a personal level and personal relationships with people, which is why he had so many friends across all groups, too. Uh, me and him had something in common in that. Like, we were friends with jocks. We were friends with nerds. We were friends with cheerleaders, druggies, like the whole, you know, the whole society of, of young age groups. We, we branched into all of that. And that's, I think, just from being a good person. Like Doug just kind of had a magnet attached to him that was like a smiley face. Like, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm good. I'm here to have fun, not screw anybody over. And, of course, if you sell weed, you're going to have a lot more friends and a lot more people coming and going in, in and out of your life. Yeah. Facts, yeah, and uh, they're not all good, I can tell you that. And especially, you know, this is, to give more context as well, this is in Wisconsin, you know, in 2009, where um, places like Colorado were, you know, just kind of starting to open up to medical marijuana, but still very illegal in Wisconsin. So there was this kind of, like, fun, you know, kind of hippie, like, taking it to the man element uh, in the social circle, and then there was also definitely a like shady criminal element as well in this place that you that he was living is this i mean how big of a town is this is it a big city like this was so this is in green bay wisconsin which at the time i believe the population was like 113,000 or something like that so you know it's not a hodunk town middle of nowhere but you know, it's also not a major city by any means. It's Yeah, we we actually lived in the sub, uh, suburb called Alloway, um, which is just a bit south of Green Bay, but think of it as uh, the greater Green Bay metropolitan area. And Brown County, give or take, has and had roughly about a quarter million residents for the whole county. And Green Bay is the center metropolis of that, divided by the Fox River, east and west. We lived on the east side, the southeast side, in the suburb of Alloway. Very nice neighborhood, you know, walk your dog around, you know, let your kids ride their bikes at night. Good middle America kind of town. Not a place where this kind of thing happens is what we always say, right? Yeah, there's really not very many unsolved murders in Green Bay or Brown County, and this is one of them. So, yeah, it's and and ironically, uh, part of my mom's, you know, logic and line of thinking was let's get uh we you know we were in rockford illinois previously and i think part of her line of reasoning was rockford was kind of turning into uh, a much more shady kind of criminally influenced town 
And part of her logic getting us up there was that it was going to be safer and more quiet and, and have less of that influence on, on her kids. So life is always full of irony, I guess. But Did anything happen leading up to this, or did this just boom out of the blue? Well, you know, again, the, the context of the selling weed and, and other drugs, I guess, was somewhat of a buildup, but that being said, right, there's drug dealers all over America where this never comes into play or, come, you know, their their lives are never touched by murder. In a sense, Doug was playing a dangerous game, and then on the other hand, it, it was absolutely a shock to, I think, the entire community, you know, have a murder in a town like this, Especially, you know, my parents were very involved in the community. That was another element that played into it. Our family is, I guess, very connected to the community. Uh, my stepdad built a, you know, donated a skate park to the city and was a well-to-do, is still a well-to-do citizen. Uh, both my parents were really model citizens, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And so, yeah, it, it, Definitely shocked people from all angles, but again, there was this all this element, all these elements involved that might clue in some more cautious people, I guess. So, where were you and doing when you got the news of this? I was at home. I was 17 at the time, so I was still staying with my parents. You know, I was in my senior year of high school, finishing up. Uh, the police came and knocked on the door. You know, I was still asleep for this, but they knocked on the door, spoke with my mom, and she came up the stairs and woke me up and informed me basically on the spot. I was woken up at early hours in the morning, one, two, three, something like that, and uh, told that this had just happened. That's a it's a pretty rough way to wake up, and you kind of want to. You know, you wonder if you can keep waking up. Uh, I forgot about that, but uh, I believe Jamie might have got something wrong. Uh, I think it was me that woke you guys up. I remember that. Um, I got the call at about 3.30, 4 a.m., and I knew something, like, immediately was wrong, like one of them psychic things, like, oh, this is this is not fucking good. Uh, sorry, I don't know if your show is, like, PG-13 or what, but uh, I kind of got coarse language. I'll try to limit it. You can talk however you want. <laughs> All right. And uh, it was Kyle, one of the characters we'll probably get to later. And he just said, I got to come over. And it was almost like I knew something happened. And then uh, I thought we had to go over to uh, Doug's family's house to tell them because I didn't want some random stranger calling there. So I knocked on your guys' door at about 5 a.m. and I uh, told you. And to be totally honest, I... Maybe some of the stuff I'm going to, the answers I might give you, Justin, may not be accurate. I mean, grief and the, the emotions, I guess, just play into that. I I hate to say some of this stuff is foggy, and I I remember cops coming over, and I, I'll, you know, sorry, I'm fumbling for words. Um, I'm sure cops I just, yeah, I'm sure they did come over, and you're, you know, it's 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 been over 10 years now, and grief 
does mess with your mind and your all your memories and you block things out. I'm dealing with it right now. It's absolutely a thing, but yeah, this is why we're talking about it. So yeah, I I guess that's that's how it went and uh, yeah, I guess that, uh it's good to have you here, Sandman, to be able to <laughs> fill in the blanks here for me. So Yeah, that was uh I'm not gonna lie, that's the roughest moment I've had in my entire life. Like I'd rather go right back to boot camp and go through an entire basic again than deal with that five minutes. It was it was brutal, and I'm sure it was even worse for you. Like I'm just his friend. That's your fucking brother, man. Ouch. The details that you know of, he was at his place. Obviously, there were people there. How did this go down? Sandman might know better than me. I'll I'll let her rip. And, uh, you know, the same, same thing as for, uh, your family learning, like the same thing might've happened to me. So if I get any details wrong, you know, correct me. But, um, I was actually there earlier, earlier in that evening with my girlfriend at the time. Um, I had this brilliant idea that I was going to get on drug, get off of drugs and start dating Christian chicks and everything would be, you know, just peachy. Uh, that one didn't work out. But uh, me and my girlfriend at the time were there, and we watched a movie. Um, Doug was there with his girlfriend and, you know, said goodbye, left, went our separate ways. Um, I went home for the evening. I got the call later. But the, the events that I was told that I remember, and keep in mind I was not there, was that there was roughly five or six people that were engaged in a marijuana buy in the kitchen of roughly two pounds of pot, uh, street value about five grand or something around there. And um, it was just a friendly exchange, like here's some pot, here's some money, let's smoke some weed. At which point uh, two individuals kicked in the front door. These two individuals, one of them brandished a firearm. I do not believe the other one was armed. And uh, it was an attempted robbery, a home invasion, uh, most likely linked to drugs or money or whatever, but that sort of lifestyle. And Doug got up, uh, tried to fight off the attackers. Everybody else that was in the, in the kitchen was scared shitless. Um, got to the ground. Uh, one of the attackers with the firearm fired once, shot Doug through the chest. Both of them ran, escaped out the front door, the same place that they had breached entry. Doug collapsed and passed away in the kitchen with the friends basically freaking out. White suburban kids, their first introduction to real violence. Um, everybody was losing their minds and they called the police and some of the individuals there attempted to hide evidence and or whatever sort of incriminating things that were there uh, while they waited for the police to show up. If I'm not mistaken, I believe it took 15 to 20 minutes for the police to arrive at which point it was a shooting, so they were in, like, full-blown SWAT team-ish mode. Came in, guns drawn. Doug had passed away already. I don't think there was anything an ambulance or anything else could have done at that point. 
I don't know, the saga continues from there. Did I did I miss anything, Jamie? Does that sound accurate? Yeah, I guess the only, and maybe it's just my own kind of bitterness, but I was also under the impression that uh, when Doug was shot, that, it, you know, rather than the reaction being, well, let's get medical authorities here, let's call the uh, call the ambulance, call the police, it seemed like the efforts were really put toward hiding evidence, certain people getting just outright leaving, you know, to not be connected to the scene or situation at all. It seemed like, I, I guess what you would expect of a bunch of just really scared young 19, 20 somethings in that situation, no one acted really with maturity. Nobody uh, acted with Doug's welfare in mind. It was really all, self-serving of how do I get out of this situation uh, cleanly and, and immediately, I think was the reaction. Pretty much. So at this point, I mean, I'm sure both of you are in shock. I, I know how I felt when uh, I learned about my sister. I mean, how long does it take before you, it even sets in that, this actually happened and they're gone. Gosh, that took a long time for me to, for that to really land. I mean, in a way, I almost want to say years. I just feel like that dynamic of the, just the mentality that I was in at that age as a 17 year old, Doug was my uh, father figure as well as older brother. And, so anything cool, I would want to show it to Doug. Anything I wasn't sure of, I would run it by Doug. Wouldn't always take his advice by any means, but was always interested in his thoughts and things. And in that sense, it took a really long time because, especially with some of the grief that took me years to deal with, you're kind of, I was compensating sometimes with, living my life a certain way so as to, oh, Doug would approve of this or think this was cool or that kind of thing. And in some ways you would adjust quickly. And then in other ways, it's very difficult. There's things that you want to share with that person, update them on your life, uh, get their thoughts or opinions on decisions you might make. And the impulse to go to them with questions or information stays with you for years. And I'm sure you could, I'm guessing that you could relate to some of that as well, Justin, that uh, when you lose somebody suddenly, there's not this, it, it doesn't land right away. There's a very, can be very extended adjustment period to reorienting your life and, and who fits in where in the roles that you need in your, your own social life. Sandman. Yeah, for me, it took years to, uh, after Doug passed, I went into, uh, to, I don't know, like straight Trent Reznor mode, like downward spiral. Like it was not good. Probably took me till I was like 22, 23 to right the ship and get back again. And I, I know that if you lose, you know, a grandparent or a parent and, you know, they've lived a long life and they're, 
you know, health is failing, it still hurts. But having a family member or a friend murdered, that's a whole other level of just shock to one's system. And I, I don't know how to even convey that to other people, uh, what it's like to go through. Yeah, it, it, it kind of rips all your fundamental axioms about the world away, you know, that, and that happens with, with any sudden death or tragedy, but I think even more so with a murder or um, anything, you know, I, I think overdose might be in the, in the same category as well, where it's something that on so many levels, in quotes, shouldn't happen. We, we have all these systems in place to prevent these occurrences, to discourage them, to minimize and eliminate them, right? We have, there's so many things we think about, uh, especially if you're raised, I guess, the way that I was, to sort of believe in the system, that uh, police, the justice system, right? If uh, it, it was sort of this belief that if someone was killed, that, well, the police do an investigation. They figure out who the murderer is. They put them away, and uh, life life goes back to you know a happy little city and society. And I I think in these situations where not only are things unresolved, but there's also an element of the system failing. And so that really then drops the bottom out from under you, right? Of, well, if the whole way you see how the world works changes, right? You think you knew how the world worked and then all of that changes, all of these unconscious assumptions that you've made that build your, whatever your current worldview is, those get questioned and, so all of a sudden you're kind of back to square one as far as what do I know is true. There's, of course, the shock of losing a loved one. And then on top of it, there's these layers of the shock of the bottom of society and, and how you believe it should work and function uh, dropping out from under you. And I, I think that's the case with, you know, all, all kinds of tragic situations really. And, and I'm sure something that your listeners could could understand. I know uh, we all watch Law and Order or CSI, things like that, and we have this expectation of what's supposed to happen, especially when the most the the worst crime, which is murder, happens. We expect that to be the priority. What was their response? Yeah, and this is this, and this is really. The major point, I guess, of, of what I would like to touch on is uh, I still carry a, a little bit of resentment about it. Law enforcement really uh, did not show up. Across the board, I think it was negligible at best. I mean, it, w it was really pretty appalling. I would use that word. The response was that these the drug task force was put on this case and the murder was not prioritized nearly as much as the drug involvement and so again you've got to remember these are 19 year olds 20 year olds like Sandman said I think it was something in the ballpark of two pounds or something at the home so 
this isn't a life-changing amount of money or, or drugs uh, or even there, there's a lot worse drugs in my opinion than, than marijuana uh, as well. So just, you know, make, make your own minds up about, uh, about all that. But the, the gist being that the cops really went after the drug aspect. They, they went after these kids, uh, including Sandman and really went to the limit of charging these kids with, running a drug home, selling drugs. I mean, really kind of threw the book at them and changed a lot of these kids' lives forever, all the while not pursuing this murder. I mean, they literally did not even close off the crime scene. The The home was left open for days after the murder. People were coming and going and God knows what was moved or taken or disturbed or. I just walked in. Like I walked up to my old house, just opened the door and strolled in. There was uh, the obvious evidence of a murder left behind on the floor. Random stuff strewn about evidence of the police seizure and zero security. The rest of the things Jamie's attesting to, we can go into much farther detail. I have knowledge on that but it was very astonishing to myself the first time that this had like a legitimate crime had occurred in my life, how seemingly screwed up and lax like procedures and operations were. It, it honestly boggled my mind. I, I don't know how uh, free I am to talk about names, places, people's events, because there might still be other people out there, but it was mind boggling to say the least. And this is coming from like a 20 year old kid. So if a 20 year old kid can walk in there and go, this is not right. Like what the hell is going on with the law enforcement in Brown County? It's hard to tell if it's just complete incompetence or lack of caring, or as you alluded to earlier, if it is corruption of some type, I always assume incompetence over malice because it's just, you know, more prevalent in our society. But yeah, sure. They they go after all of these kids for drug charges, but it doesn't seem like they were very interested in collecting evidence about a murder. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, they got those vicious weed dealers off the streets, but uh, the murderer remains at large. So make of that what you will. Yeah, and of course they made efforts toward figuring out who did this, and to their credit, basically everyone involved lied about everything. You know, they they didn't want to be, people who were present didn't want to admit that they were there, people lied about who was there, how many people, you know, it was it was really a mess for the cops to sort out, but all that being said... I helped them straighten that out when I went in and talked to Al. Did lie at first, but uh, then when I went in and talked to Al, I made sure he knew everybody that was there at the time, like squared it all away. They had, you know, verified accounts. So just because everybody lied at first doesn't mean they don't know what happened. I just want that to be made known too. And You would think that it's a murder. They would be trying to align everyone's stories and vet what went down, what could be verified and what couldn't be. But again, 
this is sort of an education for our listeners. If you don't know, sometimes they don't investigate the way you think they should. And this was probably one of the few murders that happened in this town in a long time. Yeah. And, and so, right. I mean, there, these, whoever was first on the scene or last on the scene probably didn't get the proper training and protocols. And in, in my opinion, it was probably a combination of everything you mentioned, you know, the incompetence, the neglect. And, and I do think that there was the reason I bring up the word corruption. It's a relative word. I, I guess I use it in the sense that, it seemed like the motivation to go after the, the kids for drugs was that drug busts is what got these these guys in the drug task force raises and promotions. And the more of those that they could bring in, uh, the, the better that this organization looks and the more funding they get, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the impression. and there were comments made by the DA at the time who made pretty, I'd say, malicious comments to my mom. I'm not really sure how they could be. I, I just, I, even assuming the best about this person, I really, I can't call them anything but malicious. And the attitude, I'd say it could be summed up as she was, she was of the mind that there was one less drug dealer on the street and they were going to bust all these uh, other druggies and that this was just a great situation in general, overall, kind of from all and this was, angles. This is Wendy Wemkula, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, I remember her. She was uh, a hoot, to say the least. Yeah, so that was that's my impression and take on on the attitude of, of her in her office at the time, uh, just really not admirable character and uh, la- entirely lacking in, in compassion and some might say sense. I understand your, your kind of shock and uh, despair, you know, to this investigation and a DA's reaction and response. Um, you know, it was back in, 2011 when I was called to jury duty for a first degree murder trial jury selection was a Monday morning and I put a guy away for life by Thursday and that was shocking to me you know it's that whole view of perception of how the system is supposed to work and I wanted to tell the world like this is how the system actually works and Hence, the reason why I even started a podcast was to educate and inform. And uh, some of the cases I've covered, I mean, listening to your story, it's sadly, it's not surprising to me at all now, you know, 10 years later, because I've right. covered so many. I'm just like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. I'm like, no, why would they uh, rope off the crime scene? Why would they bother with dusting for prints or anything like, you know, just case closed in their minds for the most part it's we don't care right i i think a lot of america's you know our our idea or conception of how things unfold is going to be like it is on csi or something where there's a murder and there's like a team of experts just waiting to 
get into this and they've all got, you know, justice on their minds. And um, it's just, like you said, the more you get involved in the system, the more of these stories you hear, the less surprising the unfortunate and tragic ones get. And you get a lot more conditioned to hearing about the failures of the system for, from all angles, right? The, the legal aspect, the investigatory aspect, the post-trial aspect, right? The real, um, you know, whether you want to call it rehab or, or, uh, or punishment, you know, I, I just from every angle, uh, there's so many tragic elements once you get involved with, with these situations. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very enlightening, I suppose, to come to terms with all that and to see all the, all the holes in the system, all the gaps that cases fall through all the time. Now you were communicating with some friends of your brothers or people that were associated with them and they were, I guess, contacting you right after this event and being super nice to you? Yeah, so um, the way I hear that question is kind of, there, there's this whole other element to the story, which is one that I feel like at the time I was very naive and that that played a role in getting Doug killed. And there were also people involved who were very malevolent, you know, and malevolence comes into contact with naive innocence, I mean, it's a field day, right? So that's my take on what happened. And, uh, and I'm not at all trying to scrape blame off either. I've taken a lot of responsibility to, let's say, get the, get the naivete off and to, you know, become a lot more worldly and, and wise to things. So, that being said, yeah, I, I made friends with a person in my high school class and spent just a lot of time with this person. You know, we would we would smoke a lot of weed, we'd play frisbee golf, we were uh, we hung out a lot, you know, outside of school, and he was just always, you know, he, he was from kind of a tough home and kind of had to support himself financially, struggling to get ahead, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I obviously knew that Doug was pretty successful at selling drugs and, um, this guy was kind of hustling weed on the side and I just thought, Hey, you know, I'll make this connection and, uh, maybe be able to help him out. And, uh, and in the process, help my brother out too, right? Like now he's got another outlet for weed. It was, it was just a connection, I guess, that I thought I was making with again, best intentions, very naive, innocent ones, but, uh, uh, or very naive and but, but good intentions at heart and um yeah i guess looking back it became very apparent to me especially over the years that this was very very likely someone directly involved with the murder whether they broke in themselves or whether they were the getaway driver or whether they just supplied information it just became obvious to me years later that they were involved and that they had been fishing for information for months prior and, and really that I should have, you know, never involved myself with someone like this, but 
we learn from from our experience. But yeah, the the gist, Justin, was that yeah, this person that I thought was a friend used that to their advantage, got all this information about uh, the way that Doug ran his business and uh, used that to write time time things and figured out that there was you know a, a weed deal going on and and when the house might be full of weed and and all of that so and then pry you for information after the murder to see if the cops were yeah so I, i'm sorry i went on a bit of a tangent you would ask yeah so they showed up pretty soon after the murder i think it was the morning following this guy showed up with another one of our sort of mutual friends from school. I guess he was more of an acquaintance slash friend, but the two of them showed up at my door, you know, very early in the morning, you know, heard about what happened. Uh, so sorry, you know, they came in, they asked me what happened, all that. And yeah, we maintained a relationship for literally years following that until I put this all together and realized that they had been fishing for information prior to the murder and that they had been fishing for information afterward about what kind of information the cops had, um, what the cops were thinking, you know, because they would share sometimes theories and and all that with our family. Um, And so, I mean, they were really clued into this, right, about all all the details on the case. And are, are we allowed to name names? No, but I think, yeah, to, to finish my thought, um, the, this relationship concluded with this person out of the blue. They were, they were involved with a rap group and they were doing music videos and that kind of stuff. And they came out with a music video that featured like pictures of Doug, like in, kind of a montage and some of the song was like kind of grieving about Doug and these guys like weren't tight with Doug at all. They were just acquaintances. You know, I just had introduced them and they'd come over and kind of smoked weed with Doug a, a couple times, but it, this was, these, these guys were not like a tight knit group by any means. And so the whole thing struck me as really bizarre that they would kind of do that, like go that far out of their way and express that much emotion. It just, it just struck me as so off and I couldn't place it. And I kept thinking about it and then it just hit me and I just got the chills all through my body and I couldn't believe everything made sense when I thought about, well, was this person involved? And, And the police had thought that they were involved. And I, they mentioned it to me, and I was so blind to the situation that I, I said, no, there's no way. The guy wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, again, that's how naive I was. And then, you know, years later, I, I finally was able to entertain the thought and just entertaining it. It just, everything clicked. Everything made sense. Um, I couldn't believe it. The person had sent me that, that link, and I just responded. I said, never contact me again, and they didn't. And you would think that if, if I mean, if I had, if I had nothing but legitimate intent and goodwill and all that, 
and I did something like this for a friend and their response is never talk to me again, you'd, you'd probably respond and say, Hey, what's up? You know, what's going on? Why don't you want to, you know, did this offend you? You know, you'd be, you wouldn't just drop it or at least I, I wouldn't, you know? Um, so that kind of confirmed things for me as well was just out of the blue. They sent this music video about my brother and I put this all together and I say, you know, don't contact me. And that's, that's the end of this five, six, seven year relationship. You know, that's, that's a little telling to me. Yeah, I, I would probably have done the same thing that you did. I, I would have accepted everything they were doing at face value as something good and caring because that's what we want to do is just give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. That's a, that's a much more comfortable world to live in than one where you need to question the people that you keep closest to you. Right. That's a very exhausting world to be in much easier to take things at face value. So Sam, I want to give you a chance to talk to, is there anything that you want to say about your friendship or the aftermath of it all? Um, I mean, hell is my best friend is like getting a fucking nut rip dog or something. You know what I mean? Like, uh, we, me and Doug were guys that could, uh, like finish each other's sentences. We were just tight. And, uh, that one hurt more than some family members, not going to lie. And, uh, still to this day, but, no, yeah, and I, I would like, I guess I, I just, you know, I, I want to touch on the whole sort of positive side of Doug's life that he really did touch a lot of people's lives like Sandman, like my own. Um, he was just an incredibly vibrant person and, you know, just unapologetically who he was and um, was just really great to be around most of the time and um was so much more than someone who was murdered was so much more than a drug dealer you know he he was killed a couple uh two two nights before his 20th birthday and you know was really just becoming a young man and uh he he was just a i, I just want to emphasize i guess all of his kind of positive traits and and how i remember him you know, just really generous, really creative, really smart, uh, really engaging with the world that, you know, it's just what a what an absolute tragedy to lose somebody with that much life ahead of them. And, uh, yeah, you know, just I, I guess I just want to mention how much more there there was to Doug as, as a person. Um, over those 20 years outside of being a, a drug dealer and someone who's murdered. It sucks that we have to talk about that aspect so much because it was pretty instrumental in you know, his final day, but people are brothers, people are sons, people are you know children and siblings and best friends. They're not just summed up by this one thing in their life. Uh, I know of all the bad things I did when I was a kid and thank God there wasn't social media around because that's not yeah. all I am. And I would hate it if my obituary said 45 year old man 
selling drugs is gunned down. Like that's not who I was and that's not who any of these people are. So a little compassion is, goes a long way. Yeah. Doug sold pot, but do you know how many times since his passing, I've thought of Doug as a pot dealer, zero. And nobody else that knew him thought of him as a pot dealer outside of the Brown County drug task force or the district attorney's office. The, the Do you remember him as Sandman? Pardon me? What what comes up for you, like remembering Doug? Would you remember him more of as? Kind of like a Santa Claus. <laughs> like, uh, he was always jolly. Also, he used to be fat. I'm not going to hold any <laughs> darts back from my homie, but uh, Doug was a little pudgy. Uh, in high school, he dropped a lot of weight uh, playing Dance Dance Revolution, of all things. But uh, he always had a smile on his face and, like, he would throw his head back and laugh. And, like, you remember those, like, Norman Rockwell-looking Coca-Cola advertisements where it's, like, Santa with a Coke and he's got his head back laughing? Like, that's kind of how I remember Doug. We were young men. We'd get into altercations and we'd butt heads and shit, you know, like anybody else that's 15, 16, 17 on testosterone. But... At the end of the day, he was always just a happy guy and a good guy, too. Like, he didn't do people wrong. And that means more to me than pretty much anything else. I don't know if you It sounds like you're trying to end this, but no, uh, no, the story no. of corruption gets deeper. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. And I actually have some more questions for you guys, so you can keep going. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. All right. Covered... Um, so this is kind of where my story kicks in a bit. Um, years later, um, it was coming up on statute of limitations. Also, the lead prosecutor for Brown County got appointed to a judgeship and another judge retired, meaning there was a DA spot open and a judge spot open. So at this point, every ADA in Brown County brought any charges that they had could have pending to anybody anywhere, basically. Um, I got looped in with that group along with a bunch of other suspects and associates, co-conspirators, whatever may have you with Doug's murder, including uh, two suspects, which I'm pretty sure Jamie alluded to earlier, which I shall not name. However, I was locked up in Brown County Jail with these gentlemen. I use that term loosely. The DAs tried to press people for information, quote, unquote, leading to Doug's murder, but all they really wanted to do was rack up felony convictions to boost their records for election season, in my completely unhumble opinion. So they went after a bunch of kids. Uh, at this point, it was about five, uh, yeah, I believe it was like four and a half, five years later for a conspiracy charge. So in other words, anybody that ever bought or sold pot from Doug got lumped into this. And they used one of the main individuals there at the scene who attempted to hide evidence to bear witness against all of these other people, myself included. And Brown County Police lied on search warrant information to get access to these residences. And their logic was if we press hard enough, somebody will squeal for the murder, allegedly. 
that never happened. Um, what did happen was a bunch of DAs and ADAs got small-time pot convictions, and the murderers are still free to this day. I would like you to know that two of the prime suspects have been arrested again in Brown County, charged with second and subsequent drug-dealing violations, and are let go and are on the streets again. And the DA's never squeezed them for this original crime, which is more evidence to my thought process that they don't care about Doug, they don't care about his family, they don't care about his murder, they care about scoring points in the game. And their game is getting people in jail or to plead guilty to things and not taking murderers off the street. And I know that sounds biased, but that's my own personal view from my experience in the legal system. I can't say I disagree with your statements and it's it's your point of view so you're not you're you're not wrong in an opinion and your point of view. I will say that I know that that's how the legal system kind of works is they try to hold things over people's heads to get them to talk, you know, they use that leverage. But I think that the only time they need to use leverage to get people to talk is when they don't have any evidence, they don't have any leads, or they don't have any strong leads. And in that point, it's like, well, if they had locked down the crime scene, if they had checked phone records, if they had checked cell phone towers in the area, whatever it was, if they had gone the mile, the extra mile to solve this, then they wouldn't have had to go this other route because they could have solved it with witnesses. They could have solved it with seeing who's in the area or following leads that apparently you guys had given that lead investigator. Yeah, that that sounds um, objective and logical. Um, however, it is my personal belief that Brown County knows exactly who did it or at least one or two of the parties therein because there was three total minimum Mm -hmm. and i believe they are basically waiting for a witness to come forward to hand in the case instead of trying to prosecute the case um the the lead investigator knows to my knowledge at least i don't i believe they just got a new one on the case i believe jamie talked to that individual so you should ask him but we know who did it or at least one of the parties involved um, so do the police, so do the district attorneys, but still nothing's done. It's not surprising. You know, again, I, I can't disagree with what you're saying at all, and I wasn't even trying to disagree with it. It's just on paper, it's they're appearing to do their due diligence, as I guess is how I should have phrased it. Um, because Yeah, it sounds right yeah. when they talk to the TV cameras, but uh, once you know the inside, yeah. at least to me, it's disgusting. You know, the common thread, right, that's that's kind of being woven, I think, with a lot of the stories on your podcast is the, again, just kind of the the failure of, uh, at at so many levels, right, with the police, with the legal system, with the DA, with the, uh, with the courts. I mean, that's the common thread, right, is that um, we, we think these things are going to unfold with integrity and as they should and that's unfortunately just uh so often not the case when you first reached out to me you were you were talking about podcasts talking about this kind of subject and 
how you felt it was exploitive. Um, do you still feel that way? I mean, do you, do you think it's helpful or hurtful or just depends on who's doing it? Yeah, I, I think it definitely depends on who's doing it. There, there's absolutely podcasts out there that strike me as very, you know, it's a continuum, right? The, of, of how exploitative something is. And there's podcasts everywhere along that continuum is, is how I was struck that some of them are, are very exploitative um, and, and others, you know, like yours, I, I really feel like the total opposite of being exploited. I feel like my agenda to be able to give uh, our side of the story, which uh, was not done by the Green Bay News, they put out a very um, washed version of events and they very selectively uh, chose details to share and neglected to share others. And um, in any case, I, I just feel like you're really serving my agenda to get what is in my mind, the truth um, out there. Uh, it's just, this has bothered me for years that um, the way things unfolded and of course, then there's another layer on top of that of, well, people should know how things unfolded. And I would hate, you know, I, I hate to think that there's other people who might be uh, as misguided as maybe I was and that are, are really faithful in the system. And, and so, I, you know, I want to share this story I guess with the agenda of, of getting the truth about Doug out and his story to honor him and also to, to kind of, yeah, clue people in that, that this is a possibility and I don't know, just be <laughs> not, not to just read a, a news article or a statement from a police department and just believe it on the face value of it. There's a lot more to this. Yeah. And, and in so many cases is the thing, right? To, every time you hear one of these stories, just take it with a grain of salt kind of deal. But, but yeah, I, so anyway, I, I think I was getting on a tangent, Justin, but yeah, no, I, I feel like this is just a great opportunity to kind of serve, serve my wants of getting this truth out and getting, again, our family story out, getting Doug's story out, getting Sandman's story out. You know, are we, are we going to get justice? No, like that, Justice would be Doug living out a full life, right? That's that's really what should have happened, but that's not on the table. And in my mind, the next best thing here is just being able to share, I guess, the truth of it, which has just seemed like it's been banging around my head and Sandman's head for years and has had no outlet. So um, being able to have an outlet for all that is, is really powerful. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of it. It's just 